You're listening to Yellow Peril Tactical, the Tiger Block Podcast. Hello, hello to our returning and new listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This is Snow, she, they pronouns. Hi, I'm Camilla. I'm here today and I use she and they pronouns. Welcome, Camilla. Um, So today's episode, we're going to touch upon the intersection of unions and firearms. So Camilla, what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word unions? Unions. I think about big unions of today, like SEIU and AFL-CIO mm-hmm. and AFT. Then I also think about, you know, like the old old union songs and like the unions of yore, like IWW. And I think about, um, you know, coal miners going on strike, trying to stop stop people in their old Ford trucks coming into the picket lines. Totally. I think of scabs. Yeah, I think of kind of like the the overall arc of like white leftism in the United States really just runs parallel to like all the all the stuff that happened in unions um, throughout the course of especially the 20th century. I don't really know much about before then. Yeah. No, I think a lot of union activity um, sprouted in the 20th century. Certainly there was before that also, but I think what is more known definitely is what happened in the early 20th century. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like those are all things that I think of too, when I think of unions. Um, but the thread there, right, is like all of these workers were coming together to fight for better working conditions, right? That's kind of what the, what the crux of unions are. Um, and how they were formed. But, you know, listeners, you might be wondering, like, why why is YPT talking shop? Um, and you'll see why as we get through this episode. Um, this episode is a bit of a deviation from, like, our interview episodes, but, you know, just sit tight, hang out, and enjoy the storytelling, and I hope you learn something new today. So, briefly... Uh, unions started as a tool of white supremacy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Very much like the majority of institutions in this country. Um, but essentially, white workers did not want anyone besides other white people getting their jobs, right? And so this was due to many reasons, but mainly racism, obviously. And as true as it is today, um, historically, immigrant and black workers were paid less for the same work. Um, this does not go outside of the um, enslavement of, of black people, right? Like, that is all entangled in this history. This racial tension between white workers and everybody else uh, caused a lot of violence, right? Like, white workers assaulted and murdered workers of color, right? Chinese workers, black workers, Latinx workers, right? But the the violence between workers is actually not where this ends. Um, and we'll, we'll probably do an episode on the treatment of Chinese and Filipino workers in the 1800s. 
um, especially as there was a huge influx during that time. But we're gonna get started with the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885. Camilla, have you heard of that? Uh, you know, I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you what happened and who was involved. Oh, well, you are about to find out. It is a sad story. Um, but I think it's a story worth telling. Um, this is going to be one of the many massacres that we'll cover in today's episode. But essentially, on September 2nd of 1885 in Rock Springs, Wyoming, there was this climax point of tension between white immigrant miners and Chinese immigrant miners. Um, and this is, you know, directly what I just talked about, right? Like, this is how class and race intersect. So many immigrant Chinese workers took railroad jobs, which is a widely known fact today. The white workers did not want them there. They felt like they were, you know, they're coming here to take our jobs and, and baba booey bullshit. So on the early morning of September 2nd, uh, white workers showed up to where some Chinese workers were and told them that they had no right to be there, um, which is, you know, a tale as old as time. Um, and, and these workers, these Chinese workers were beaten. And at this point in the story, uh, one of the Chinese workers actually died from his injuries. Um, and so, but it doesn't stop there, right? Um, the white workers continued to go on into town and gathered more white angry workers. Um, and they eventually, like, staged an attack on Chinatown and killed at least two Chinese workers uh, when they initially came up on Chinatown, right? And so this obviously caused widespread panic among Chinese workers, and they went fleeing in every which direction, which is, like, you know, very understandable. During this attack, some of the Chinese workers were robbed, some were beaten with guns if they weren't shot by them. Um, and many were killed, like ultimately 28 Chinese workers were murdered and many others were wounded or, you know, otherwise injured. Actually, some of the workers that were murdered were identified by body parts, like they were mutilated. And this was just really a, a fucked up attack. Wow. Uh, not a lot of words for that level of violence other than unsurprising coming from, you know, did you say it was in Wyoming? That's where Rock yeah. Springs is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that certainly scans with my understanding of U.S. history. So going back, touching on what you were saying about um, unions being a tool of white supremacy, mm -hmm. right? It seems like they're just as much a tool of white supremacy as they are a reaction by working class white people to capitalism in the extraction that was happening with them. Yeah, I mean, their rage is completely misplaced here, right? Like they... Really punching down. Yeah, it's... Like, of course, they're mad at their bosses, but they totally just, like, aim that anger and rage towards people who are just also trying to make a living. It's the same kind of argument around, like, outsourcing and workers in the United States being like, oh, well, you know, those Chinese or those Mexicans are taking our jobs. Actually, no, it's it's literally corporations taking your jobs away. Mm -hmm. And like making backroom deals to undercut you with lower paid labor. A hundred percent. And also it, it it really creates this opportunity for like international class solidarity, but it's obviously a missed opportunity when you see that nationalist perspective on unionism and labor, right? It's like very short sighted. Mm -hmm. And it's also the, the convenient option. It's way easier to just attack like working class people of color than it is to actually go up against 
the root cause of that, which is corporate greed, right? It's corporate fascism. Corporate fascism is not new. And here at YPT, we we hate capitalism, don't we, Camilla? Oh, absolutely. I mean, can't be said enough. Right. Try not to uh, irritate you with how often we'll be saying it and suggesting it. I think that um, it's important to understand these as not conflicts, like some more conservative readings of history will describe them. They're not conflicts. It's a massacre. It's called a massacre for a reason. Right. And to deny the one-sided nature of it, the uh, level of like defenselessness that you're talking about, like we're talking about people like living their lives in already incredibly difficult conditions mm -hmm. with really no end in sight, right? They're working on these enormous projects that we can't even really conceive of the the magnitude of today right. like building a fucking railroad right. across the fucking country right blasting mountains like mm -hmm. working probably every single day right and on top of and so and for them to be doing this work that no white people i mean very few only the newest newcomers right. which are the irish in this and case back then they weren't even you know white they weren't even considered white um they you know it's it's just like the type of like racial animus that's like uh as old as this country if not certainly older but... oh it's most certainly older mm -hmm. um because it's just a leaf of the imperialism tree right it's something that is old as it is new we are surrounded by it today right multinational corporations become the standard it's it really drives the need in my mind to create more international working class solidarity because you will always have more in common with a working class person anywhere than the CEO down the street. You have CEOs down the street? Do you know Maybe. which houses they live in? Um, I'm not going to say that on this podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. I forgot we were recording. Mm -hmm. So, to get back to it, more on corporate fascism. Anyways, so have you heard of the Haymarket Massacre? That one, yes, I've heard about it. That. Okay, awesome. There's a lot of things named after it. Oh, yeah. It's a well-known... Haymarket is a well-known word, um, and I think um, it's a really important narrative um, because it has a lot of significance today. Um, but basically, during the time of the Haymarket Massacre, the U.S. Be was becoming more and more industrialized and, of course, on the backs of workers. And this, this massacre was a defining moment in labor history, and as I said, it still carries significance today. It's um, essentially what May Day is named after. Essentially during this time, due to the industrialization of the U.S. work, workers were working an average of like 60-hour work weeks and beyond. Like, it was, that's the average, right? So there's going to be several weeks where they work a lot more than 60 hours a week. So there was this coalition formed among anarchists, socialists, and the established labor federation at the time, and their name was the Knights of Labor, and they worked together to fight for an eight-hour workday. Um, and I, I really just like want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is like a motley crew coalition uh, of a coalition, and um, you don't really see alliances like this anymore. Like um, Tommy Lee motley crew, or sorry, bad joke. Yeah, um, that's okay. So Knights of Labor, that doesn't sound super promising. Um, well, you know... I mean, it's just a name that suggests we're behind it. Well, like I said, 
unions were started as an institution of white supremacy. Ah, yes. So does the Knights of Labor name really surprise you? No, it's not surprising at all. It just, it sounds very conservative. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tale as old as time, the left moves the needle. Um, this group worked together to fight for an eight-hour workday. And this group decided that starting on May 1st of 1886, that the eight-hour workday would become standard. Across the country, uh, workers went on strike. Community members took to the streets with them to demand this, right? There were like thousands of people all across the country taking to the streets. Um, and this was actually like largely nonviolent um, up until May 3rd when the strikers decided to go confront the scabs. And the police ended up firing their guns on the crowd and killed two of the striking workers. And you might be thinking like, why, why are the cops there? Well, cops, law enforcement are tools of the state and the state goes hand in hand with capitalism. So the cops had been escorting and protecting scabs during the strike. This created the dynamic in which when the strikers came to confront them, the police were like, fuck you, and killed two of them. So in response, like, the anarchists organized a rally uh, for the next day, May 4th, at Haymarket Square. Um, and this was also largely nonviolent um, until later when the police started approaching the rally, ordering them to disperse, right? Like, this is the, this is the local police bureau. This has been declared a riot. You must disperse to the east. And as the cops were approaching, um, a bomb or two might have been thrown in the path of the approaching cops, right? And so this, these, this ended up killing some of the cops. Um, and, you know, immediately gunfire erupted and several people were, were killed. Um, and this is the 1800s. So eyewitness testimony is not always the most accurate, but some reports say that in the panic, the cops actually shot each other, um, but it's just a rumor, right? We don't, we don't know this for sure, but I think that's funny. Let's be real, they probably did. I mean, yeah, right? Like, it's not hard to believe. Um, but as a result of the May 4th violence, eight anarchists were arrested and tried in the judicial system, you know, the quote, judicial, end quote, system, for their participation uh, in this demonstration. And, you know, ultimately, this... 1886, four days of action did actually did not actually result in the eight-hour workday. That happened um, years down the road. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this was the event that precipitated that? Right. Okay. Yeah, this kind of laid some framework for that. Um, and so that's what May Day is, right? May Day, 1st of May is International Worker Day, which um, those of you that live in the United States, we know our Labor Day uh, as the first Monday of September, that was actually a co-opted um, to move away from international working class solidarity. Um, but I will not talk about that today. I just thought I would drop that little piece for you to chew on later. Um, so moving over just a little bit, uh, Camilla, have you heard of the Pinkertons? Yeah, I was just wondering about them because you're talking about the police the police as like, you know, agents of the state, protectors of property. And I was like, yeah, it's almost as though they're like being paid off quietly to carry out these duties for um, corporations and to ensure that they don't have any interruption to their labor supply, i.e. people. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's easy to see how that just 
they they stopped messing around with the pretext that they needed to do anything else other than just hire a bunch of private goons to do their bidding. And so it makes perfect sense that the uh, next step in that progression and the next thing that the, the market brings about is the private police force. So yeah, I think of Pinkertons, I think there's like some recent um, representations of the Pinkertons in like video games and movies. I know one of them is Red Dead Redemption 2. They're they're kind of like the the villains. They're cast as the villains in that one, which is they are villains. That, that's kind of cool. Um, but also, I don't think it, they talk nearly enough about it. the wider role of the Pinkertons. So yeah, I've heard I've heard of them, but uh, I don't really know what they're about. Well, let me tell you, they are privately contracted agents of class warfare. Um, they're privately contracted goons. They are, their purpose is to quell and eliminate the threats that workers pose on the ruling capitalist class, right? So when there was worker unrest, corporations would hire companies like the Pinkertons. There's other ones out there historically and to this day. They still exist, but they um, have evolved and adapted over time. Essentially, like, their relationship with unions happened initially when a railroad company hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency, or whatever their full name is, to infiltrate a union of Irish immigrant miners. Um, and that's how they actually started in their formative years, is kind of just infiltrating um, and being spies. Um, and so when they infiltrated this union, they actually led and worked with law enforcement to that led to the arrest of 60 miners. Um, but that's obviously not where this ends. As I said, they evolved and adapted over time and really went beyond infiltrating and just became murderers. They did not give a shit about workers and their rights, despite also being workers themselves, which to me, I think is like, the most like painful part of this because under a capitalist system we are all workers and unless you are on the like board of directors of a corporation or a literal ceo you are not a capitalist and so these pinkerton goons are everyday people but they've just chosen the wrong side of the class war um, they would get sold off as easily as the workers they're murdering um, which, again, is this like misplaced analysis of what it means to live in a capitalist system. Like they could have gotten honest working jobs, but instead they decided to sell their souls. So fuck them. Mm-hmm. Fuck them indeed. Uh, so this is what we mean when we say that uh, cops and the like are class traders. hundred percent. That their class interest is actually to fight for better working conditions and that their their battle is fundamentally against the same forces that the as those who they are uh, oppressing and beating up and mm -hmm. arresting and policing so yeah that makes sense that that scans for me yeah it's truly despicable this is why cops do not cops are not workers they should not belong in like other labor federations with other unions because ultimately bosses will call cops to break up labor disputes on like the picket line, for example, right? Like if you're blocking the road, they'll call the cops. Um, and depending on where you live and who you are, cops might intervene, they might not, but guess what? They're still gonna call the cops. So 
Like, what does that tell you about whose side they're really on? Oh, yeah. That's clear. Right. Um, and so with the, the Pinkertons, as I mentioned, they evolved over time. And so during the Homestead Strike of 1892, where the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers were striking over another pay cut, Andrew Carnegie, who was making the equivalent of like $128 million in today's economy, um, Carnegie hired the Pinkertons to, to protect the scabs, right? And the Homestead Strike is actually fairly well known, um, but I think it has a lot of significance in terms of like strikers confronting scabs and having the Pinkertons protecting scabs. Um, and this, this strike like ended in blood, right? Around 12 workers were killed by the Pinkertons gunning them down, right? They were murdered by these fucking privately contracted goons. And uh, this is kind of, this is here again is another intersection of guns and unions. And there were other skirmishes between workers and bosses that involved firearms, but this is like the most, like the earliest widely known gunfight on the picket line. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we've mentioned scavs. I just want to be really clear here. Um, and, and Camilla, you know, what comes to your mind when you hear the word scabs? Because we're not talking about wound care here. Oh, I was going to talk about uh, skinning my elbow on the asphalt. No. No, not that type. No. Oh. Um, well, I, I think of people who are being manipulated by the ruling class to take labor that um, there is an urgent need for, not really being given all the details and being kind of like hustled uh, through the back door into the workplace to replace the workers. Um, as just like a default, oh yeah, of course we're going to do that tactic. Mm -hmm. Like, um, yeah, that, yeah, I, th I think oftentimes scabs don't really have an idea of what's going on and then they learn and then they have no excuse for what they're doing. And so mm -hmm. there, I think there's a big, um, cognitive contradiction going on there for, for scabs and, um, <laughs> just a, a quick anecdote about um scabs and the pinkertons i remember in like 2016 i was on a picket line for the burgerville workers union and burgerville had hired a uh which if for listeners who don't know like the burgerville is a like pacific northwest local um fast food chain that sells like a little higher scale fast food that's really just the same same old shit uh, dressed up a little bit more and they're just kind of like you know conservative family values kind of a company anyway workers unionized because they treated them like shit and on this picket line there's private security that are making sure that no one blocks the replacement workers that they're calling from all these different burgervilles there's like there's hell of burgervilles up in P the pacific northwest so they're bringing other burgerville workers in and uh someone's like you fucking pinkerton like yelling yelling at the security guard and the, this told me a lot about the way that labor history is viewed by even those people because this person felt the need to like distance themselves from the pinkertons and was like i'm not a pinkerton <laughs> as if you know as if it mattered right, right. it's like okay whatever there's a, there's a straight line between the pinkertons and mm -hmm. where you're standing right now and I thought that was just funny that the Pinkertons have that bad of a reputation that yeah. even the goons today are like, don't call me that. That hurts my feelings. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about your feelings. 
if you want to be a fucking scab, you can be a scab, but, um, we'll let you know how we feel about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is a great example. I did hear about that. It's very common for bosses to hire some kind of private security for strikes. You know, essentially scabs are a labor term for replacement worker. It's who gets called when workers are on strike to make sure that, you know, production is not interrupted because that's all they care about, right, is making money. Um, and so they pay these scabs usually more than they pay their own employees uh, to do this work while they're on strike. Um, and again, here comes the theme of people working against their own interest, uh, working in opposition to their fellow working class people, right? These are class traders. Let me be clear, scabs are not people who are in solidarity with working class people. They are also agents of class warfare. They just generally don't murder people. They leave that to the Pinkerton types. They're not good. If you ever come across somebody who scabs, maybe um, have a long conversation about what the fuck it is that they're actually doing. You know, mm -hmm. it might be fun to yell at a scab on the picket line, but ultimately, like, if we want to eliminate the concept of scabs, we have to talk to these people directly and just be like, you are literally working against, one, your own interest, and two, against the interest of every single working class person on this fucking planet. I think that's a really good point, because oftentimes you see throughout history that, that scabs actually can get turned. Yes. So you can actually talk to people about what they're doing, have like a, a civil conversation before you resort to like, like yelling at these folks. I mean, do what you're going to do, right? right? But <laughs> just talk, talk to these folks and you can oftentimes turn them and they'll just, they'll either go home, great, or even better, they'll join you on the picket line. So like that's, that's the ultimate like clap back mm -hmm. to a, a boss bringing in scabs. Right. Yeah. Although that is, you know, easier said than done. Yes. Um, and sometimes the only opportunity you have is just to yell at them from the picket line, which is also totally fine with me. Mm -hmm. So those are scabs. We've talked about Pinkertons. I will briefly mention the um, Madawan Massacre of 1921. There was a gunfight between miners and their, their company goons. Uh, who, well, they're, it's the Baldwin Feltz Company. Essentially, gunfire erupted on May 19th of 1920, and they ended up, the goons ended up killing two miners and their mayor. I don't know why I'm laughing. Um, but essentially, their mayor was on the side of the workers, as was the law enforcement of this town. This really erupted, um, and it wasn't just on May 19th. It actually ends up stretching uh, way beyond that, but the reason I mention it is because it actually lays the framework for Blair Mountain. And so everybody should know about Blair Mountain. It's like, it's the largest single worker uprising in U.S. history so far. I think we're seeing a huge strike trend right now, which makes me very happy inside um, because ultimately workers run the world and, well, Workers run the world. That's it. So in, between August 25th and September 2nd of 1921 um, is what is so defined as the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, and it was during a time where it was common to live in a company town. 
And Camilla, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like to live in a company town and what it means? Yeah, I was actually uh, born in a company town. I grew up in one. I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't think they're legal anymore, but uh, it's questionable because we're seeing Amazon move to that model. We're seeing like a lot of corporations move to that model. And essentially what that model is, is you create a section of land that is owned by the company that houses all the workers. And essentially you remove any necessity and sometimes you, um, through incentives and coercion, dissuade workers from ever leaving and they essentially live on this little compound where they work where they you know have hospital treatment sometimes uh oftentimes they'll have a store oftentimes they'll pay them in a currency that's only valid in that geographical area in that company town called scrip super exploitative it's you know it's just trying to control literally every aspect of the workers lives and also they have an actual return of the wages that they're paying to workers come back to them. So they're literally money that would otherwise be the workers to do with as they wish just gets cycled immediately back into the coffers of the company. And it's disgusting. So yeah, I can imagine the misery of living in uh, an arrangement like that. But that's all I can do. I can only imagine I wasn't actually born in a company town. That was a bad joke. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, these are super common um, in the early 1900s. There are different versions of that today. Um, There are instances where in smaller towns, um, one big corporation will like keep all the attorneys in town on retainer. Um, And so who's going to fight them with you? Nobody, because they hire all the attorneys. Essentially, it paints this picture, right, of like the level of control of corporations, but also like the 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 narrative that like workers don't have any other choice. They have to work for these companies and live in these company towns or else they have nowhere else to go. And to add insult to injury, when you couldn't pay your rent with the money that your company is paying you to live in their own housing or to the in the corporations housing they would be evicted by gunpoint by corporate henchmen right like you literally have nowhere to go um and so you are completely subjected to this this company that obviously does not feel great right it really disempowering um and this is the same time as the battle of blair mountain um and so people got fed up right like that is essentially the catalyst that happens here, again, this is kind of like a byproduct of the Madawan massacre, and it led to Blair Mountain. Mm. And so the initial conflict started happening on August 25th. President Harding threatened to send in national troops. Ultimately, during a meeting in Boone County, miners were convinced to de-escalate. Um, but, you know, um, as we said earlier, cops are agents of the ruling class. And the local sheriff was, like, itching to deploy his henchmen on the local miners. So fucked up. And the sheriff, Sheriff Chaffin, Chaffin, whatever, was notoriously anti-union. Rumor and word had spread that Sheriff Chaffin's men had shot union sympathizers and their families. This obviously enraged the miners, and they are like, nah, fuck that and they decided to head back to Blair Mountain and so by August 29th both sides uh, were established. The miners had outnumbered 
Sheriff Chaffin's men, but, you know, Sheriff Chaffin, Chaffin had more advanced weapons. Um, and so the cops took higher positions, as in, you know, like a battlefront, they took up to the hills, etc. And they actually dropped surplus World War One bombs on the miners. Bombs! They also had, like, Maxim machine guns from, like, World War One yep. on the rooftops. Yep. Just nuts. Yep. Um, and so the gun battle started between the cops and the miners, and this continued for days. Um, and it was a lot of back and forth. Um, and at one point, the miners uh, almost gained majority territory in the non-union counties. That's when President Harding was like, okay, I gotta send in some fucking federal troops, which is, you know, boo. Um, but on, on September 2nd, they arrived. Many of the miners were veterans themselves and did not want to shoot the federal troops, right? Because these are people that they fought alongside with. Um, and this actually led to the end of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, and several hundred miners were arrested, and many of them were convicted and imprisoned for years. This battle really raised the uh, national awareness of the conditions of the miners, and it inspires, I mean, it inspired workers for years after and to this day, right? Like, it's on the anniversary every year, I see several posts that talk about the Battle of Blair Mountain and its look. It's seen by, you know, radical unionists uh, with with admiration and respect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when when uh, Snow says battle, it was like truly a battle. Oh, yeah. Like, there were like heroic charges by mm -hmm. the miners yes. against like a better armed uh, foe. Mm -hmm. They would like capture machine guns. I think in one case they even threw back a bomb that mm -hmm. failed to detonate that was originally thrown at them. Yep. And the death toll was really high. Yes. Like, were there Pinkertons in this battle? I don't recall reading about that. Certainly possible, but I really think that the cops did all this by them bad, their mm -hmm. bad selves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know it, a lot of cops got killed um, in this battle, as did a lot of miners. Mm -hmm. And um, on multiple occasions, uh, Pinkertons would also get killed. So mm -hmm. it's not as though these folks uh, aren't taking losses themselves. Right. Yeah, it's a bloody battle. I think it's, I think it, it kind of shares or, sh well, it shows how scared the ruling class is against the rising up of workers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, sure, the sheriff was like, really wanting to murder these miners. It might have been seen as like hatred or whatever, but ultimately that is derived out of fear mm -hmm. um, that they will no longer be in power and that these workers who they have oppressed for years may finally rise up and turn the tables. Mm -hmm. It seems like it was really like a, a signaling that the time has changed too, because if this was like 60 plus years prior they probably they probably could have gotten away with this and like not made any significant changes afterwards mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have rattled people in the same way because just violence was just happening all the time because of genocide and because right. of that's that's how this country was formed mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to think about the about the amount of time that went by between like the end of the civil war and so-called like you know emancipation and this this that was 60 years you know that's like right for us, that would be like Vietnam, the Vietnam uh, War, the American War in Vietnam. So that's just kind of interesting to think about too. Like the memory of like widespread civil conflict with like millions of people dead was just like not that far off. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people just hanging around that were still that, that fought in those battles. Right. 
And also, that is also like the, an important historical context for miners, right? A mm -hmm. lot of these these aren't all white miners, right? Far from it. Like there's there's a lot of black miners who, either in living memory or their parents' living memory, were enslaved, right? So that's another reason why uh, these company towns have the audacity to be doing what they're doing because it's like compared to what, right? Compared to chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. So quick point yeah. there. Yeah. The massacres that we mentioned in this episode is a non-exhaustive list of workers fighting back. Um, and there are many more, of which some I'll note is the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the St. Louis General Strike of 1877, uh, San Francisco Waterfront Strike of 1901, the 1905 Chicago Teamsters Strike, the Centralia Massacre of 1919, Harlan County War of 1931, which there is a good documentary on HBO Max. Great movie. Mm-hmm. And the San Joaquin Cotton Strike of 1933, Textile Worker Strike of 1934, Greensboro Massacre of 1979. Um, and again, this is also a non-exhaustive list, but these are just a few significant ones that I mentioned. In addition to these, there were the, the Pacific Coast riots in Bellingham, Vancouver, and San Francisco, where Chinese workers were attacked by white workers, right? So again, it's a lot of inter-class wars between the ruling class and the working class, and also intra in terms of the racist attacks against workers of color by white workers. If you're interested in this history, um, feel free to pause and write down some of the names of these events or... Uh, we can also suggest some good books to pick up and read about this kind of stuff. Yeah, just DM us. Let us know. Um, and so you'll notice that the ones that I listed took place prior to 1935. Um, what happened in 1935 was that the National Labor Relations Act was passed, granting federal protections to the majority of workers in the United States. Um, but this law excludes farm workers and domestic workers. Uh, we're not going to get into that today, but it is fucked up. Passing of the NLRA um, also established a process for labor disputes. Uh, this was followed by the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, 12 years later, um, and this amendment uh, basically kneecapped unions and was a direct result of the waves of strikes after World War II during 1945 and 1946. Essentially what happened here is that, you know, there was essentially a national no-strikey clause uh, during World War II, but ultimately, like, that doesn't mean that people were treated any better. Um, it just meant that they were, like, there was a federal injunction against striking. And so when that was over at the end of the war, people were like, bet, it's our time. Their uprising was so effective that the U.S. outlawed many tactics used during that time through the Taft-Hartley Act. And so the Taft-Hartley Act outlawed secondary strikes, sit-down strikes, many other tactics. Um, but essentially a secondary strike is people going on what's called a solidarity strike. So say I work at a Kroger store and we are on strike and Camilla works at a related company that does some kind of like supply distribution. During that time, Camilla's workplace would go on strike in solidarity with my workplace. But this act outlawed that because it's so effective for obvious reasons. And also sit-down strikes 
Um, so those are different from like strike strikes because instead of leaving the shop floor and forming a picket line, people would occupy their workplaces, right? Because then you can't bring scabs in. Obviously, again, you can see why that's effective um, and that's been outlawed. Like, doesn't that just like make you angry? Because it makes me angry, even though I wasn't even there during this time. But we obviously suffer the real impacts of the, these laws that do not actually help workers, uh, which is not new. It's not surprising, but it's still disgusting. And so these labor laws have limited what striking workers can do on a picket line. But these laws are not necessarily applicable to community supporters, right? And so... Uh, you've seen this recently on the Nobisco picket line, um, as well as the ongoing strike as of the recording of this episode in Buffalo, New York at the Mercy Hospital, um, where community supporters have blocked scabs from coming into the facility. And again, striking workers cannot do this because they will be, it's, well, it's outlawed. You know, if they do it, they will suffer consequences. It, it doesn't apply to community supporters. The, the passing of these labor laws also led to total control of the state to oversee labor disputes, right? So that's why we say cops are not part of the working class. In addition to many other reasons, um, there has been a huge decline in union membership, and it's steadily declined over, like, since 1935, or maybe 1947, but it's been on the decline, um, and it's currently at about 10% of private sector workers in this country are unionized. It's not nearly enough, but it's it, a lot of unions are afraid of the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Bureau, or what other federal agency to really push back. We can do a whole episode on that, um, or maybe I'll just talk about it later. Who knows? Yeah, I think we there's enough uh, history here to take up a lot of separate episodes so oh, yeah if this is something that's interesting to y'all we can talk about more recent labor history as well and get into like the reagan years which we really are responsible for explaining the fucking shit show that we're in right now in terms of like labor power being at a very low level yeah <laughs> and um just real quick like i think one of the reasons why labor is uh so like organized labor is so weak right now is because Corporations have seen how crippling it is for the economy when entire supply chains go on solidarity strike, mm -hmm. like Snow was talking about. And that's like a huge vulnerability that they'll patch and that they'll defend at all costs, right. even if they have to do so through extra legal means. Mm -hmm. So I think just on the note of guns and unions, there's a lot of complexity around the role that the use of force, the implied use of force, all of that, um, you know, the law is on the side of the corporations and obviously the police are enforcing the laws directly and that's what they're tasked with doing. And that's just something to keep in mind is that, that it's a very asymmetric playing field. And we know that like when this gets out of hand, the National Guard gets called. That, that happens time and time again throughout U.S. history. And so, you know, far from advocating armed uprising what we're talking about instead is knowing that we don't have to leave the playing field so askew right and, mm -hmm. and that i don't want to sound like a a right-wing two-way supporter but we we do have that right and it's just a matter of us finding the wherewithal to begin spreading practices around firearms that are in principle with how we want to be living mm -hmm and that help promote spreading worker power. 
right? And so that can that can look various ways, and maybe we'll touch on that um, at the end of the episode more. But I just kind of wanted to plant that seed. Yes. I mean, I think that nicely explains why we're even talking about unions and guns and how they relate to each other. You know, a lot of the stories we mentioned were from a hundred years ago, uh, more than a hundred years ago. Um, but that all is to say that workers rising up against corporate fascism is not new, um, but it's also not an issue of the past. Um, and the capitalist state has evolved, um, at least in the United States. And gun skirmishes on the picket line are not as common in the U.S. as they were 100 years ago. Um, but the threats against acceptable and dignified working conditions are just as prominent today as they were back then, right? And so we're not necessarily being like, okay, everybody roll, like, roll up fucking strapped to the picket line. But just kind of think about like what these lessons are telling us. Um, because it's, like I said, it's not an issue of the past. There are labor struggles all across this globe that are still facing existential threats, right? And just within this year, right, we've seen the general strike in Colombia. We've seen the farmer protests in India. Um, the Palestinian general strike earlier this year. Uh, the working class knows no borders because borders are made up. We can, we know, we actually, we can do another episode on international labor struggles. If you would like that, um, please send us a DM and let us know. Um, but there is truly nothing scarier to the ruling class than workers realizing and acting on their power, right? And this episode is to emphasize that, you know, firearms are tools, um, but you should have a whole toolbox of tactics that you can use to fight for better working conditions um, at your job and also just for better conditions in your community. Um, because whether or not you like your coworkers, you are all in a community. Um, whether or not you share values, opinions, what have you, you, we are all a part of the working class. I think it behooves us all to kind of think about what the political climate is like, where you live, um, and how unions are a part of that and how they can be stronger in your communities, right? Because strong unions is one sure way to say fuck capitalism, right? Like workers coming together to fight the ruling class is the embodiment of fuck capitalism, right? And sometimes, you know, that means organizing your right-wing conservative coworker to go on a, a, a strike with you or even like to do a march on the boss with you or some other kind of workplace action, right? Because that is what it's going to take. Like we have to make sure that people know whose side they're really on and what that means. I just went on a tangent. Um, so to get back to what I've written, um, recently the AFL-CIO of Vermont, which is the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, they passed a resolution in support of Second Amendment rights at their annual convention in September of 2021. And their president, Dan Van Dusen, I might be saying that wrong, um, stated that, quote, we all know that the dangerous, violent, extreme right is armed to the teeth and there is no law that can be passed on the state or federal level that would reverse that fact, end quote. And you know what? I couldn't agree more. 
Um, we all know that most gun control measures are racist, whether in intention or execution of this law. And so while this resolution by the Vermont AFL-CIO is aimed towards the violent far rights, we know that law enforcement and corporate fascists are all in the same circle. They're all holding hands and singing songs about how they are going to destroy the working class. And, you know, they're all on each other's top eight on MySpace, right? Like, they're all friends. And so the Vermont AFL-CIO has promise to actively oppose any unreasonable gun control measures, right? And this is the first, this is likely the first, I could be wrong, like, please tell me if you know of another one, but this is likely the first major labor group that has publicly supported the Second Amendment in this, on this leaf of fighting the violent extreme right. And I think among our regular listen listeners here, you will be excited to hear that as as excited as I was. I was like obsessed with reading this about this. And I think it's, it kind of um, speaks to a new chapter of, of the labor movement and the fact that workers organizing for better working conditions also leads to community defense, right? Of what it means to actually be able to live and work with dignity and self-determination. That goes to say that here at Yellow Peril Tactical, we support workers' rights, we support community and self-defense, and community defense and labor fights are not separate. You know, we're not necessarily, you know, saying bring a bunch of guns to the picket line, but more so that, like, workers' rights are human rights. Yellow Peril Tactical stands with anyone who dares to fight back against corporate fascism because we are running out of time. And as Camilla mentioned earlier in this episode, Amazon is trying to recreate company towns. And that is fucking terrible. Nothing good can come of that. There is urgency. We are running out of time. If we don't do shit now, this is going to be some parable of the sower shit where we have company towns and people are left to fend for themselves. That is not to say that things are gravy right now, um, but that it could get a lot fucking worse. Okay, Snow, what? What is the takeaway here? Well, it, the takeaway here is that guns alone are not going to win your battles, right? You need solidarity, you need community support, you need strategy. And so that comes from building community and getting to know people at your workplace. It's going to visit a local picket line and talking to the workers and directly asking them, I am a community supporter. I want to support you. What does that look like? How can I help you? Because your fight is my fight. And any corporation in this city that dares to, to deteriorate your working conditions is a threat to everybody else's working conditions. Um, and mm -hmm. so in the capitalist system, the, the way that class, race, and gender intersect, and other identities, of course, is critical in our considerations as we fight for a better future, right? Because we live in a capitalist system, you know, class kind of threads the needle on the way that all of our other identities interact with each other. Because ultimately, we are all workers. And um, one way to fuck capitalism is to organize with your coworkers. And you don't even really need a union to, to improve your working conditions. All you have to do is scare your boss. Okay? Um, and... Again, organizing for better working conditions is community defense. And so if you hear of a 
city, go support them, go to their rallies, follow them on social media, send them a message of support, um, bring them some food to their picket line. Please do not bring them donuts because they already have tons of donuts. Bring them some fruit or maybe um, some other kinds of snacks. Um, or if you can't bring food, just bring yourself um, because it means the world to them to see people from their community coming to stand with them on the picket line. Yeah. Camilla, do you have anything to add? Um, not a lot. I would say that we have time right now to be studying the labor movement and to be studying the full array of options that we as workers, whether you're employed right now or not, is totally like outside of what we're talking about. Right. Just examining like what are your what's the recourse for you as a worker with whoever you've worked with just at a theoretical in the abstract just think about it like at, at one end you don't even have to form a union you can act collectively with your coworkers to send a message mm -hmm. that can look so many different ways that's a little outside of what we're talking about today but you can do that and you don't need to declare yourself a union at all um mm -hmm. in, in fact it's oftentimes simpler and easier and more strategic to not and then you have unionism where, you know, you, you call yourselves a union and you're acting together. And then at different levels of intensity, your tactics have to change. And at, the, at one extreme, you are being threatened with firearms and the use of force. And if you can't answer that, and if you can't have a, uh, a level of deterrent that often takes the form of self-defense weapons, which... This is a podcast in part about firearms, right? That That is a measure that also needs consideration. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't want it to feel for the listener like we're like kind of like beating around the bush here. We're talking about self-defense. We're talking about... Community defense. We're talking about community self-defense, right? As opposed to offensive things right we're, we're not talking about like leading raids into the company warehouse to steal cookies but you know what you do in minecraft is your business but i'm talking about where we are right now and what and we're, we're, where we are right now in my view is a, a time to um think things through and to take preparatory steps to get ourselves situated to respond to Things that we've seen play out in the past and just as clear as I am capable of stating it right now that looks like organizing in your community yep at the level of defense you yep. at the level of the workplace you yep. and at the level of the home you yep. yeah because honestly like if you're not building community what are you even doing all right <laughs> this is Snow. Camilla. We're signing out. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.